Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Dr. Celine Gounder, infectious disease expert, epidemiologist, and member of President Biden's Transition Advisory Task Force on COVID-19. She and others helped craft the policies that led to the dramatic uptick in vaccinations across the U.S. Like many other experts, she warns there's a threat of variants driving increased cases of COVID-19. Lori Robertson also checks in, the managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Celine Gounder here on Conversations on Healthcare. speaking today with Dr. Celine Gounder, who served on the Biden administration's COVID-19 transition task force. She's an infectious disease expert and epidemiologist at New York's Bellevue Hospital and professor of medicine at NYU. Dr. Gounder was the director of delivery for the Gates Foundation's HIV-TB Global Response Initiative. She's written extensively on infectious disease for The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The Guardian, The Washington Post, and is also a medical analyst for CNN. Dr. Gounder, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare today. Great to be here. Yeah, that's great. You know, we're in this race right now between uh, the vaccinations and, and the variants, and COVID-19 cases are in rise uh, here in the United States and elsewhere. And as we look at the United States in places like uh, Brazil and Chile and Europe, uh, what is most worrying to you about the plasticity of SARS-CoV-2 uh, as it continues to drive more troubling variant activity in the pandemic? I saw that Dr. Uh, Walensky from the CDC was talking about sort of being both scared and impending doom uh, on the horizon. Yeah, if there's one uh, pattern that we've seen, it's that when you have a plateau in cases, that is not followed by a decrease, that is followed by an increase and then a spike up. And that is precisely what we are on the tipping point of right now. Another key pattern we've seen throughout this pandemic is that the United States uh, generally follows Europe uh, in its, pan in its uh, transmission of the virus by about three to four weeks. And so we've seen the spread of the B117 uh, variant, which first emerged in the UK, uh, first in the UK, then elsewhere in Europe, and now to the US. And that strain is now becoming the dominant strain in the, in the United States. Uh, it's almost uh, pro probably at this point approaching 50%. And what's really important about that strain to know is that it is more infectious uh, so it spreads more easily from person to person. It's more virulent, so it causes more severe disease. And we've certainly seen, at least in the UK and Europe, younger people end up in the hospital sick with this particular variant. Uh, you mentioned plasticity. Um, what we've realized over the course of this pandemic is that the virus can actually mutate pretty significantly uh, with respect to the spike proteins. So those are the proteins on the surface of the virus uh, that the virus uses to penetrate our human cells. 
And it, it's actually able to mutate in that spike protein pretty significantly and still remain able to um, replicate. Very often when you have mutations, that's a dead end. The virus is no longer fit. It's sort of like a congenital abnormality. Um, and, and so the fact that it's, a, it's been able to mutate um, and get ahead of us has been you know, really dangerous. And, and so I think um, you know, another lesson uh, I would add to that list is um, you know, all bets are off. Uh, what we thought we knew uh, based on other infectious diseases may not always apply with the coronavirus. And, and uh, you know, we, we shouldn't be overly um, confident in, in uh, being able to project where things are headed. Well, Dr. Gounder, I, I think we've uh, maybe indulged in a little bit of feeling good about the uh, success of the COVID vaccination effort here in the United States uh, since January and, and since President Biden took office. Uh, but I think as, as you've pointed out, you know, it's good news 100 million people have been vaccinated, but that leaves 200 million people who've not been vaccinated. And we know that the, uh, the success has not been similar to the U.S. And, and some of the developing countries around the world. And it, it seems it's in our best interest for this to be a global vaccination effort, not just a U.S. vaccination effort. What, what worries you, uh, in addition to the humanitarian concern, about other countries uh, just not having this, this head start on getting their people vaccinated? Well, as we've learned, what happens halfway around the world can have very real implications for our health, our public health, our economy. Uh, and so when you allow the virus to spread anywhere, it doesn't have to just be in the US, when the virus is spreading and replicating elsewhere, it has the opportunity to mutate, it has the opportunity to evolve uh, to where it can escape both our re uh, immune responses to natural infection as well as our immune response to the vaccines. And it should not really be much of a surprise that the places the uh, more infectious variants or the um, immune evasion uh, variants are arising from are countries where they've allowed the virus to spread like wildfire. So the, the UK, South Africa, Brazil. Uh, and so that really is the substrate for the development of these more dangerous variants. So it, it's really in our own interest to make sure that the conditions for that kind of viral evolution are not there and not anywhere. You know, I, I want to pull the thread on that as well, because it, it seems to me that we also have to start changing our message. Uh, certainly the Biden team has been preaching national safety compliance and uh, vaccine acceptance, but we're still feeling the after effects of the previous administration, which has led to uh, health protocol resistance in many parts of the country. How do we leverage uh, better pandemic messaging? Also, when things are changing, you know, it's it's not what we've projected out. What what, what changes need to be made in the administration's uh, call to action uh, to to Americans? Well, I think untold damage was done over the past year uh, with respect to science communication and, and public health communication. And uh, I really think the message to everyone um, should be that you never politicize the response to a public health crisis, and that includes the communications around it. In a public health crisis, the job of politicians is really to step out of the way and you empower you marshal the workforce, the supplies, the funding necessary 
for the experts to do their job. Mm-hmm. You know, but you really should allow uh, healthcare providers, public health officials, and scientists to be the face of the response, to be communicating about the response in, in a way that's really focused on just the welfare of the people. You know, Dr. Gounder, I was reading some of your uh, background and and really uh, impressed and happy to see that it seems like wherever you are in the world trying to deal with these major uh, health issues, you try and get out and talk to the people uh, in the communities who are affected by it. And in fact, prior to the pandemic, you were doing that, I think, here in the U.S., embarking on a ill health tour, uh, kind of a journalistic endeavor as well as a medical one to explore some of the root causes of the hot spots in the country, particularly affected by disease or poor health or poor health outcomes. How, how do you think this pandemic might maybe hopefully accelerate our ability, our health system's ability to recognize and to address some of these root causes and drivers of poor health outcomes? Is there a, can we look forward with some optimism that we will take what we've learned and use it to maybe lift the health of people across the U.S.? I I am optimistic. I I do think this has been a wake-up call for a lot of people who might have heard of what we call the social determinants of health, but just didn't really focus on that or didn't really think it was something that was part of their job to address. And I I think this has really highlighted uh, the importance of that kind of thinking, that we need to be understanding uh, how, for example, structural racism has a very real impact on health. Uh, you know, how health reform and Medicaid expansion, what that has meant in different communities during the pandemic, who was able to access testing or care uh, and who wasn't and why. Uh, And finally, I think um, we've also seen some of the vulnerabilities around um, transportation, especially in rural areas, and the need to bring services to the people, not having to wait for people to seek out those services to uh, brave the uh, hunger games of online appointment making, um, but really to to bring vaccination, testing, et cetera, to people where they are. We're speaking today with Dr. Celine Gounder, member of the Biden administration's COVID-19 task force, an internist, infectious disease expert, writer, and CNN medical correspondent. She hosts uh, several podcasts, including At Epidemic Podcast, a weekly show on public health. You know, Dr. Gounder, I'm sure a lot of parents' ears uh, perked up, as you said, the B117 also was perhaps impacting children a little more. And, you know, the CDC has recently released new guidelines for returning uh, children back to the classrooms. But you've warned uh, that back to school efforts will require more stringent parameters um, to safely return. And I'm wondering if you could share with us what teachers and staff need to do in addition to getting vaccines. Uh, Obviously, kids won't be vaccinated for a while, at least uh, those Uh, under 16, Uh, and many schools right now uh, lack proper ventilation. Uh, What are your concerns and what guidelines are you seeking? I do think the CDC guidelines with respect to um, having students three feet apart instead of six feet apart are reasonable based on what we've seen uh, with respect to transmission. And that really points to the bulk of the transmission probably being airborne through aerosols as opposed through as opposed to being through droplet spread or direct contact. That said, uh, when you increase the density of people in a classroom, your probability of any one of those people 
being infectious, uh, being uh, it being possible that they could infect others, that probability goes up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that is still something that you really need to pay close attention to. And, and we really do need to be doing at least surveillance testing in the schools so that we have our finger on the pulse of where things are headed and, and uh, whether we need to tighten up measures. Uh, I think ventilation is very important. Um, in some places, that could be as simple as opening a window. Uh, New York City, uh, the Department of Health and the Department of Education teamed up to uh, inspect classrooms and, and see what would work uh, to meet certain thresholds for ventilation. And mm -hmm. in some cases, many cases, opening a window was enough, but that's not always gonna be possible. Right. And so in, in some settings, you might be uh, putting in place, for example, one of those HEPA uh, air filtration machines. Mm -hmm. Well, while we've uh, been so focused on uh, the COVID pandemic, one of the things we're very aware of is that the other epidemics that were very much in our consciousness uh, and at the forefront of our work uh, haven't gotten better. And certainly uh, the opioid use disorder crisis and deaths by opioid uh, poisoning and overdose have continued uh, to, I think, mostly climb. Um, and then of course the gun epidemic, uh, gun violence epidemic is just right in our, in our uh, faces and in our hearts this week. I know these are issues of concern to you as well. Uh, can you share a little bit with us about where you think this administration and public health will go uh, in this year to try and make progress on those two fronts, even while, of course, the COVID pandemic continues to consume probably much of our attention? Yeah, so our, our incoming Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, um, is very interested in all of the issues you mentioned, whether that's mental health, substance use disorders or the gun violence um, epidemic. And, and so I do think this is going to be front and center for him uh, as he comes into office and, and gets to work. There's uh, no question that there is an interaction among these different crises uh, with respect to the opioid overdose crisis. Uh, we know that there's a connection um, between economic insecurity and what um, some have dubbed these deaths of despair. So people yeah. dying of, of overdose, of suicide. And um, you know that also ties into gun violence because uh, two thirds of gun related deaths are suicides. Right. So uh, there's no question that some of the desperation from an economic perspective that's been driven by the pandemic is also driving those two other epidemics. I think the other issue with opioids is that because people have been isolated, they have not had as good of access to healthcare, mm -hmm. uh, they may not have been able to, for example, attend group therapy uh, or access uh, opioid substitution therapy and the like um, over the course of the pandemic the way they normally would. And one of the other pieces of advice we give to people is if you are gonna use, you do so with somebody else so that if somebody overdoses, there's someone there to call 911. And that's also really hard to do when people are socially distanced. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. Gunder, we've had uh, Dr. Fauci on a couple of times in this last year, and he's really talked about how the global health and scientific community have really come together and collaborated in ways they've never had before. And you're presenting this week at the Wired Health Conference. And I'm wondering what kind of lasting health transformation do you envision emanating from this crisis, especially as these new scientific and digital platforms for research and disease surveillance uh, scale up? I really hope we invest much more significantly in our public health infrastructure. And so that includes everything 
from your labs uh, and, and the workforce to staff those labs. Bioinformatics is, is really key here too, because to do that genomic uh, analysis where we're analyzing the different variants, that's actually quite um, technical computer science kind of work. Uh, and so I, I really would like to believe that we will invest in that kind of capacity uh, one of the other areas where we've seen uh, with respect to health tech, there being some major shortfalls is just in our data collection systems, uh, being able to analyze that data in real time across the country. Some health departments are pretty well funded, have reasonably sophisticated systems. Others, I've even seen some that were still operating on MS-DOS, uh, you know, which is going back you know, 20 years right. plus, right? So. Uh, you know, I would really like to believe that we um, invest and, and take seriously the need to have uh, the most up-to-date systems in public health, just as we do in many other industries. You know, just one last, uh, on, on the variant issue, while the United States may be doing a great job, uh, you sort of suggest there's a Petri dish out there uh, in the rest of the globe uh, where this virus may not see a vaccine for years. What's the worry that it, it mutates past our current vaccine uh, capabilities? Well, I'm not sure that I would say the US is doing a great job on, on variants. We're doing a great job on vaccination. Um, we have scaled up our surveillance for variants uh, over the last couple months, but we're still not really where we need to be yet. Uh, so I think that's uh, one issue. I am very concerned um, that the virus may well continue to mutate uh, that either the B1351 or the P1 variants, which emerged out of South Africa or Brazil, could mutate further to where the immune response to the vaccines is no longer protective. Um, and, and there could be other variants could be emerging elsewhere as well. So that really um, is something many of us are, are concerned about and, and worry about. We continue to follow your work. Thanks Absolutely. so much for joining us today. We've been speaking today with Dr. Celine Gounder, internist, epidemiologist, and member of the Biden administration's COVID-19 transition task force. Learn more about her work by going to at justhumanproductions.org and follow her on Twitter at Celine Gounder. Dr. Gounder, we wanna thank you for your commitment to going where the biggest problems in the world are, uh, for tackling these great challenges in global health, for training the next generation of healthcare providers, and for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Ciao. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President Joe Biden has made some misleading claims while boasting about his administration's progress in getting Americans vaccinated against COVID-19. In remarks he made in February at a Pfizer manufacturing site, Biden claimed that the Trump administration had, quote, failed to order enough vaccines. The Trump administration had contracts in place for plenty of vaccines for all Americans, provided other vaccines gained authorization. The president also claimed there was, quote, no real plan to vaccinate most of the country, end quote, when he took office. There was indeed a plan to acquire and distribute vaccines. The Biden administration has done more on increasing vaccination sites and vaccinators. 
As of December 31st, 2020, the Trump administration had contracted to buy at least 800 million COVID-19 vaccine doses with delivery by July 31st. Those doses included vaccines from four companies who had not yet received FDA authorization. There were at least one billion doses under contract as of January 2021. The government could acquire additional doses by exercising options to do so under the agreements with vaccine companies. So the Trump administration had clearly ordered enough vaccine doses for the U.S. population. However, the issue is that only the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna vaccines had been authorized when Biden made his remarks on February 19th. About a week later, the FDA authorized the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. In December, Pfizer and Moderna had agreed to provide 400 million doses by the end of July for the two-dose vaccines. The Biden administration announced in February that the two companies would provide yet another 200 million doses by the end of July for a total of 600 million doses. As for Biden's claim that there was no real plan to vaccinate most of the country, his administration has built upon vaccination plans made by the previous administration. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, told CNN on February 16th that there had been a vaccine distribution plan, but a, quote, rather vague plan on getting the vaccine doses into people's arms. The Biden administration has taken steps to increase the number of people who can administer the vaccines and where the shots can be given. These steps have also come as vaccine availability has increased. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Daniela Tudor had a revelation a few years ago, waking up on the cold floor of a jail cell. She could ask for help for her drug and alcohol addiction, or she could die. She chose the former. Tudor then launched not only on her own recovery journey, but on a broader quest to develop tools that could help all people grappling with addiction recovery to avoid relapse which is so common, especially in the early days of sobriety. She realized that there needed to be more readily accessible tools for those in recovery to stay connected to their treatment goals beyond the 12-step meetings and the talk therapy sessions. So We Connect Health uh, was created based on my own personal experience. I am in long-term recovery, and I went through a four-week inpatient treatment program where at the end of that four-week program, all I received was a piece of paper that listed an enormous amount of things I'm supposed to do on a daily and weekly basis for the rest of my life to stay in recovery. And I knew that building something on our cell phones that are with us 24-7, regardless of where you're from and, and who you are, would be a way to bridge that gap and keep people accountable through an app to those activities. So she founded We Connect a relapse prevention on-the-go mobile application that can be downloaded on a smartphone. The platform is designed to keep people engaged in their recovery plan using daily reminders and a reward system for when you perform the tasks that are essential to recovery. So for me, some of the key things, activities that keep me accountable in my recovery are meditation, 
EMDR therapy, and community support meetings. The individual, along with the support of our certified peer recovery support specialists, are able to input those activities into the app. And when it comes time for that activity to start, you simply check into it. You see at the top of the app how you're earning your incentives. And by the way, this incentive program is based on evidence-based research called contingency management. So it's actually proven to show that it keeps people accountable to their recovery plans or their care plans. And in return, you get credit for completing them and you can earn incentives or rewards like Amazon gift cards, which has been particularly amazing for populations like Medicaid um, in a various amount of settings where they can use those rewards and earn them and use them for things like getting their kids gifts or food or household items. The way that we've digitized it and the immediacy of that incentive keeps people accountable to checking into those activities on the go. And the digital platform also allows everyone who's connected to the person's healthcare ecosystem to see in real time activities that are enhancing recovery and also when one might be at higher risk for relapse. We have trained peer recovery support specialists all across the country and they get to leverage a tool that we developed called a data dashboard where they can see in an instance if someone needs additional support or outreach and that is built through the app, keeping them accountable to those activities and the peer having insights on how they're staying accountable to those activities in real time. And again, the risk score shows like your engagement and your care plan activities, which are correlated to then if someone falls off track and I don't complete those activities, I know that the risk increases. And so uh, that correlation is super important and staying abreast of that in real time can make a big difference in someone's life. So it really allows for this connection of support 24 seven and visibility so that when someone needs that added support, you know, not days or weeks go by, which is without this program is what happens, but rather gives insight and gives the option for connection in real time. Since the pandemic hit, Tudor says the WeConnect platform has been a lifeline for those in recovery, those now often cut off from meetings and in-person sessions during the shutdown. Actually, when the pandemic hit, immediately my heart went out for, wow, none of us have support meetings to go to anymore in person. So we immediately stood up with a set of partners, these mutual aid meetings that are online, uh, that are led by certified peers. And within just a couple months, over 200,000 people joined from all states and several countries. I would say that your biggest strength is asking for help. And that's not just in specifically with recovery, but anywhere. Our business would not be as successful as it is today without us constantly asking for partnership for support. Uh, when I don't know something, I ask about it. And I think that is strength. And I'm a big fan of Brene Brown, for example. So I find vulnerability to be true strength. But for anybody that feels stuck or feels like they're in a place where they want change, but they're afraid of it, asking for support is a huge sign of strength. We Connect, a downloadable app designed by people in recovery for people in recovery to help maintain sobriety with a support system in the palm of their hand, keeping them on track with health goals, staying connected to a care team and avoiding relapse. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. 
the show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.